Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. So I know many of you uh, are with us in the mornings uh, where we've been working through 2 Samuel. Uh, We've now moved it uh, to the evenings. So if you've just been with us in the evenings, we're into 2 Samuel chapter 15 where... um, Uh, The last few chapters, we've kind of seen the rise of Absalom, David's son. And earlier on in chapter 15, uh, Absalom had put together a conspiracy of people supporting him. But let's read from 2 Samuel 15, uh, verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there'll be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out. And all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out. And all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him. And all the Kerathites. And all the Pelathites. And all the six hundred Gittites. Who had followed him from Gath. Passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite. Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back, take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But it I answer the king, as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, Wherever my lord the king shall be, and whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Apiathar. 
See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is God's words to us. And so, the darkest day in the history of the world began. It was well into the night, probably the small hours of the morning. Jesus went out with his disciples from the city of Jerusalem. He crossed the brook Kidron, and he climbed to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Within 24 hours, Jesus would be dead. Those are the words of the commentator, John Woodhouse, writing on this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 15. And here's the question for us this evening. Why did the Lord Jesus do things that were deliberately echoing King David's words in this chapter? Why did the Lord Jesus say things that were deliberately echoing what King David says here? And why did the Lord Jesus deliberately retrace King David's steps up the Mount of Olives. Why did Jesus do that? By the time we gather as a church family next Sunday evening, we will have witnessed the coronation of a king, the sovereign of Great Britain. And if you choose to watch it, whatever you think of it, I suspect by next Sunday evening we will all agree we have seen a display of grandeur and majesty For an enthronement is an exaltation, isn't it? It is a raising up of somebody. And an enthronement is a time for feasting and joy and happiness and celebration. And what we have here in our passage this evening is the opposite. The exact reverse, isn't it? Here is an abdication, not an enthronement. Oh, make no mistake, friends, here here in our passage, there is a grandeur, there is a majesty, but it is sorrowful majesty, isn't it? Majesty in reverse. It is not a coming to a throne, but a going from a throne, a leaving a place of exaltation to a place of sorrow and abasement. Look at verse 14, the king David says, arise and let us flee. And then we watch this sorry procession out of the city and we keep reading our Bibles all the way through to John's Gospel and we hear in chapter 14, we hear the Lord Jesus say, rise, let us go from here. And out into the night, he literally retraces David's steps out of the city and up the Mount of Olives. Ah, we say to ourselves, ah, there, there is a pattern here. 
That there is a pattern here so that when the Lord Jesus does it, we are meant to realize that there is something happening here that is so significant, so hugely important. In front of us this evening, this is a profoundly beautiful but deeply tragic narrative. This is the passion, the suffering of the first Messiah, David. The first God-appointed, divinely chosen representative, head and savior of the people of Israel. And his passion sheds light for us on the passion, the suffering of the second Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate head and representative of his people. And so this evening, if you like, I, I simply want us to enter into the feel of this, the, the pathos of this story. I want us to enter the mood of it. And this evening, try and get a sense of the big picture of what is happening here, that the way in which a story like this is, is not just telling the events of a few hours and a few moments, but in fact, friends, is actually telling the story of a whole world gone wrong. Oh, the scale of what is happening here is tremendous. Our friends, here in these verses, oh, the depth of sorrow in the heart of the king. Oh, the sorrow. And here's what I want to say to us this evening. If a man like David is sorrowful, if David is heartbroken here and, and given up to anguish and shame and despair, if he is like that, Oh, friends, it is, meant, it is meant to make us realize there is no way on earth we will ever plumb the depths of the sorrow of the Savior. We will never be able to comprehend the anguish in the heart and the mind of Christ as he leaves his capital city to climb a mount to climb a Mount of Olives that because of this story has come to symbolize rejection and shame. Oh, if David was despairing, if this made him weep, oh, we will never plumb the depths of what horrors, horrors Christ bore in those hours for us. I want to tell you how this narrative works here, what's happening here. And we're going to take it over two Sundays, two Sundays through to chapter 16, verse 14. It's, it's one story all the way through to chapter 16, verse 14. We're going to do 15 to 31 tonight. Next week, we'll finish it through to chapter 16, verse 14. But the, 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 the two sermons, the two attempts at this passage will over, overlap and be like layers on top of each other. This evening, the big picture. Next Sunday, some of the details. Just, just look how it begins in verse 13. A messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And of course, the context for this is what Will showed us so clearly last Sunday, isn't it? Look back at verse 6 in chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse, verse 6, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, and Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Stealing hearts is the first step towards stealing the throne, isn't it? And if you've lost the people, you will soon lose the crown. It's how it happens. And so King David knows here it is either fight or flight. And he judges it is time for flight. 
to flee, to run. Arise and let us flee. And so look, all the way through what, what Will read for us, this, this episode of exile, this, this episode of exodus from the city, it runs all the way through to chapter 16, verse 14. Just look at that verse. Chapter 16, verse 14. And the king, talking about David, the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. As David and his men are leaving Jerusalem, Absalom and his men are arriving in Jerusalem. But what is going to happen? Who will be king? Here's the question, who is the king? See, David is vacating the throne that Absalom wants to fill, doesn't he? Absalom wants to take David's place. And so this whole story is about a terrible swap that is taking place, a terrible exile of the true king being replaced by the imposter king. A swap is taking place. But that's the big picture through to chapter 16, verse 14. The bitter loss of the kingdom. The intense suffering of the king. But in the midst of it, friends, what carries this whole narrative along, woven through this big picture, is David's encounter with different people all along the road. The, the road of sorrow that he walks is populated by people who he interacts with and has conversations with. He meets six different people between verse 19 all the way through to uh, the end of our passage in chapter 16. He meets six different people or six groups of people. Just put your eyes on them. Verse 19, he meets Ittai, the Gittite. Then verse 24, he meets Abiathar and Zadok. Take them together as one group. Then later on, verse 32, he meets Hushai, then in chapter 16, he meets Zeba, then he meets Shemai, then he meets Abishai. And of course, if this is the first time you're reading the passage tonight, your head's kind of spinning, isn't it, with all these names and who are they and what, what's the point of them and so on. We're kind of lost in the details, but here's the thing. Here's how somebody has put it. Stories like this with something happening to the king and the people meeting the king teach us how to read the Bible. Okay, stories like this with the king and people meeting the king, they actually teach you and I how to read the Bible. See, the kingdom of God that 2 Samuel is all about, the coming of the kingdom, the kingdom of, the kingdom of God is not an abstract reality, an idea floating out there in the clouds somewhere. It is a personal reality. These stories here with these six different people or groups of people are here to teach us that the king speaks to people in all their individual need and diversity and he meets these people where they are. The king meets people who are guilty or weak or faithful or ignorant or suffering, people who are powerful or deceiving or arrogant or complacent or self-righteous and the king speaks to them all and the king reveals himself in all his talking to them and in these encounters these people too reveal themselves to the king so friends when you open your bible to read a passage like this something very simple to uh, help you get a foothold to get your fingers into the story just ask this of it when you read it. When I look at David here, how does he shine a light on the Lord Jesus Christ? For David is the king and Jesus is the true king. 
Now, how does what happened to David help me understand what happened to the Lord Jesus? But when I see the people that David met, how do those people shine a light on me and who I am and what I am like? Who, who am I like in this story? Which one of these six individuals who meet the king am I most like? Let's let David be David, friends, when you read the Bible. Let the king be the king. But am I like, well, verse 19, Ittai? Am I like Ittai? What, what, what does Ittai do here? What, what does he show me about following a suffering king? Ittai is a disciple, isn't he? Verse 19, the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. In other words, Absalom is about to be king. Go back and stay with Absalom. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. Friends, this is an amazing, amazing moment. You see in verse 17, the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. Somewhere, I guess, in the events, somewhere, I guess, in the events that are coming up, the events that are coming up at the weekend, there will, be, there will be a procession, won't there? There will be a file passed. The, the king at some point will stand and, and he watches, if not on Saturday, it's part of what the royals do, isn't it? You watch your people process in front of them the changing of the guard. And as David is leaving the city, instead of leading the people out, he stops and, and he lets, verse 18, he lets all his followers process in front of him. Oh, it is majestic. And sorrowful, the people are, are weeping. This is not a coming to a throne, a leaving the throne. And the king watches them file past, inspecting them. And there at the heart of these people leaving is a foreigner. Not, not a Jewish man, but a foreigner who has bowed the knee to David. This is his moment to leave, surely. You, you're off the hook, Ittai. You're free to go. No, says Ittai, verse 21, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Amazing, isn't it? Friends, am I that kind of disciple? Are you? Who is left at the end of the Lord Jesus' life? His own followers? Who is it that confesses him as king? A Roman centurion. A foreigner. An exile. Alone the king dies and alone a foreigner sees who he is and says, I know who you are. Oh, it is an amazing picture. Verse 24, am I like Abiathar and Zadok? Am I like the others here? That, that's what we're going to do next Sunday. We're going to go through the six groups of people that, that meet the king on this sorrowful road. Here they are. Here's the way, here's the way it works. You meet Ittai. You meet Ittai, the soldier who stayed with David. Zadok and Abiathar who served David. Hushai who befriended David. Ziba who deceived David. Shimei who cursed David and Abishai who failed David. It's amazing. Six pictures of discipleship. The soldier who stayed, the priests who served, the friend who befriended, the man who deceived, the man who cursed, 
the man who failed. Lovely mirrors for us to look in. But this evening, I want us just to stay with the big picture. I want us to finish with the big picture tonight. And just like I said, I want us to take in the feel of this passage, the weight of the passage. That this is the passion of the Messiah, that the Savior of the people, their representative head, and here he is coming undone. And the Lord Jesus, in his passion, copies what David does here. He reenacts David's actions in leaving Jerusalem with his followers. He even re-speaks David's words, Arise, let us go. And he retraces David's steps out of the city with his own frightened, confused, perplexed band of followers. Why does he do that? Well, what's the point of making this kind of echo in the Bible story? Well, what's the point of doing something that will make us and make others say, hang on, we've seen this before. That's what happened to David. What's the Lord Jesus doing? What's the Bible doing in telling the story? I think think it's this, friends. It's why this is so beautiful, so, so tragic, so full of feeling. Wouldn't you agree the story of the Bible If if somebody stopped you in the street and said, tell me the story of the Bible in a nutshell, wouldn't you agree the story of the Bible is the story of exile from the place of God's presence? That, That is the story, isn't it? From the very beginning, exile from God's presence. Right back at the beginning and trying to take God's place and usurping his throne and living in defiance of him, the good creator, that act of rebellion is our expulsion of God from his rightful place on the throne of the universe. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? Expelled him. Expelled him from his rightful place. And our expulsion of God from his rightful place on the throne of the universe, if you like, is kind of acted out by us us being expelled from his presence. Adam and Eve are cast out from the garden because they first cast God out from the garden. It's what happens in the Garden of Eden. It's what happens in the exile from the land many centuries later. God's people, after he gives them the land of promise, he gives them another Eden. What do they do again? They kick God off the top spot in their lives and they say to God, as humanity always does all the way through from the beginning, we'll take it from here. And then the prophets come along, don't they? And they, they say to the people, you're living, you're living dangerously. Don't say that to God. You know how this story goes. The prophets come along to the people and they say, have you forgotten Leviticus chapter 18? If you defile the Lord and defile the land, the land is going to vomit you out. And you will be spat out of the land of promise. So the exile from Eden the beginning of the Bible, the exile from the land with the prophets later on, sandwiched between those two great exiles is 2 Samuel chapter 15. The first exile from Eden, the great exile from the land that would happen later into Babylon and into Assyria. Here is another exile physically playing out for us as we see literally the king that God has chosen rejected and expelled from the land. Well, friends, here is the height of human sin. 
here is the height of human sin that the very one God gives us to rule we reject and we expel and he is forced to cross over and get out and leave. Brothers and sisters, 2 Samuel chapter 15 is a picture of humanity's rebellion against the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. Do you know what we say to God? You can leave now. You can leave now. You, you, you leave, please. We, we'll take it from here. You've made a good start, but we've got this now. You know, between, between verses 18 to 33... In our passage this evening, verses 18 to 33, that the Hebrew verb meaning to pass by or to cross over is used nine times. Nine times the people pass by, the people cross over, the people move, they move, they're going. The soldiers are passing by, David is crossing over. They're all moving, they're all going. And here's the thing, they are all going in the wrong direction. They're going away from the holy city, away from the land of promise. That, that, that Hebrew word for, for crossing over, for passing by, in the book of Joshua, chapters 3 to 4, where the people are entering the land of promise for the first time, that same Hebrew verb is used 22 times. The people are crossing into God's land. They're, they're arriving, they're passing from death into life. Here now, the king's exit from the land of promise, it's like a reversal of entry to the land. One commentator says simply, the gift is being lost. The gift is being lost. And it is a tragic tale, isn't it? So you see, friends, this is why the Lord Jesus does it too. It's why he reenacts David's steps because the Lord Jesus is saying to us, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, he is saying to us loud and clear that as he goes to die, this is what the world does to its maker. This is what the world has always done. It's not just that Jesus arrives somehow, dropped straight down from heaven and dies. No, he has to physically act out to show us in glorious, tragic technicolor what we have done to the creator who made us. We have pushed him to the very edges of life and even into death itself. We, we reject him. We send him away. And more than that, worse than that, this is what God's own people always do to God's own king when he comes to his own city. He is forced to leave it, forced to flee, exiled from it. Is it any wonder, friends, verse 30, oh, the shame, oh, the agony, as you leave what is rightfully yours. You've seen it time and time again on our news feeds and television screens, haven't we? It's one thing to leave your country, but another altogether to be expelled from your country with nothing in your hand, virtually naked. The, the, the shame of rejection. Look how it works. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. This, this follows verse 23. All the land wept aloud. All the land wept. 
It's the opposite of what will happen on Saturday. All the plans for national feasting, national rejoicing, national day of mourning. The land wept aloud as all the people passed by. Verse 30, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told, David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. The the, the barefoot and the the covering the head, these are symbols of shame, aren't they? This is not the king exalting himself. This is the king debasing himself. This is the voluntary choosing of the actions of shame. Do you know what I think we're meant to know here? I think we're meant to see that David knows this is shame he has brought on himself. Oh, this is terrible, but he knows this is self-induced. I don't think David is weeping here in verse 30 saying how unfair this is, how unjust this is, how angry he is with God. Oh, friends, make no mistake, it is unjust. This is God's king. But doesn't David know in some sense he has brought this on himself? He's already covered his head in shame before he literally does it here, doesn't he? Look back at chapter 15, verse 14. Chapter 15, verse 14, David says, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us. Bring down, literally bring down evil on us. And strike the city with the edge of the sword. Well, just look back to chapter 12. Keep your finger in chapter 15. Look back to chapter 12, verse 10. What did Nathan say to David? Chapter 12, verse 10, Now now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up ruin, evil, against you out of your own house. Do you see it? David knows here as he climbs the mount that what the prophet Nathan said would happen is happening. What the Lord said would come true has come true. This man Ahithophel in verse 31. It was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Do you know who Ahithophel is? Bathsheba's grandfather. Bathsheba's granddad. One of his closest advisors now turned against him. Isn't it so likely? This man never forgot what David did to his precious granddaughter in her house. And we're going to sing about Ahithophel next Sunday. David, David sings about him in Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Do you know those words? The very words the Lord Jesus uses to describe Judas Iscariot. Ahithophel is David's betrayer. Do you know how Ahithophel dies in just a couple of chapters later? He hangs himself. 
Oh, he's here as a forerunner, isn't he, to, to Judas? Judas. It's, it's literally the foundations of the story that are going to be played out again, just as David and his men climb the Mount of Olives and they get news of a terrible betrayal at the heart of the kingdom. So Jesus and his followers climb the Mount of Olives and they get news of a terrible betrayal. Judas has come to seal your fate. Oh, friends, this is the king's darkest day. Exile, rejection, shame, betrayal. All the people's rejection of God poured out on him by rejecting his king. But do but you know why I said this is so amazing, so, so wonderful, wonderful beyond words? I, I think we simply have to stop our mouths and wonder here. Remember how I said there is no way on earth we could ever plumb the depths of the sorrow. If we, if we see the depths of the sorrow in David's heart, We'll never plumb the depths of the sorrow in Christ's heart. Do you know why? If David was despairing, if this made him weep, we'll never plumb the depths of what Christ bore for us in those hours. Why not? Because David knew he was carrying his own shame. Carrying his own folly up the hill. His own sin and deceit and lies and murder. Those things had made David a shadow of the king he once was, hadn't they? In some ways in chapter 15, he, he seems to find himself again. David is decisive. We need to go. We need to do this. The people respect him and honor him. But David is a broken man at this point. A shadow of the king he once was. In a sense, he has brought all of this on himself. Ah, but friends, not the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the Savior as he says, rise, let us go, as he goes out into the night, as he climbs the Mount of Olives. Not him. Oh no, led like a lamb to the slaughter, even though in him there was no deceit, no shame, no sin. In reenacting David's steps, isn't the Lord Jesus saying to us, isn't he saying this, this is what it will take to pay for a world's sin and rebellion. That a perfect king will walk the steps of the imperfect king, exiled from the land, himself representing the people who are exiled from the land. This is what it will take to right a world of wrong. A perfect king will die for the imperfect king. The perfect man for the imperfect people. That him, the perfect king, would be cast out for them and climb the hill and be abandoned for them in ways that David himself was not abandoned, not left alone. Isn't it, isn't it true? David's, David's shame here, at least he has closest friends who stick with him right to the end. Imperfect as he was, but the perfect man, oh, the perfect king dies alone. Betrayed by his closest companions and yet, yet to do it all, all as guiltless, clean, spotless, no shame or sin of his own, his own, only his people's. Have you ever wept for your own sin, your own folly? I guess we've all got memories of it, haven't we, at some point or another. You know how hot the tears can be, how bitter the regret, the remorse. 
Can you imagine never having known any sin? Can you imagine never having tasted it in any way? Nothing inside you that was ever attracted to it? Nothing in your nature, your mind, your emotions, your intellect? Nothing in your actions that ever strayed into sin, that ever dabbled with it or tasted it or wallowed in it? Nothing about you that was impure? It's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? And yet he walks towards the Mount of Crucifixion. So, so like David, rejected. So unlike David, bearing no sin or shame of his own, but walking up to bear the, the sin of the world, to offer up to God the one thing that no human being had ever offered up to God. Perfect obedience. And to receive in turn damnation on the cross for the sins of the world. Oh friends, I want us to see this evening, verse 30, verse 31, in David's weeping, see just a faint reflection. An echo of Christ crying out with loud cries and tears, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, my place, condemned he stood. Listen to these words as we finish. Professor Donald MacLeod. When Moses saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai, so terrifying was the sight that he trembled with fear. But that was God in covenant, God in grace. What Christ saw on the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane was God with the sword raised. The sight was unbearable. In a few short hours, he, the last Adam, would stand before that God answering for the sin of the world, indeed identified with the sin of the world. He became, as Martin Luther said, the greatest sinner that ever was. Consequently, to quote Luther again, no man ever feared death as much as this man. He feared it because for him it was no sleep. It was the wages of sin. It was death with the sting still kept in, death unmodified, death unmitigated, death as involving all that sin deserved. He alone would face death without a covering, providing by his very dying the only covering for the world, but doing so as a holocaust, totally exposed to God's abhorrence for sin. Oh, friends, the wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear. No, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. And so we worship. And so we wonder, don't we? The passion of our King, our Savior, climbing the mount to die for you, for me. We're going to sing together as we close our worship, our final song. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Let's worship together.